0: put your bookmark there. uh, This is where I would like to uh, lead us in our discussion for class. This is class period, correct? Okay, so uh, not only do I expect, uh, you know, participation head nods, but uh, you are more than welcome to uh, speak. You can even disagree if you want to, you know, I have no problem with that. You want to be wrong in front of everybody? That's your business, but No, seriously, uh, I, 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 I would welcome, if you have comments that you want to make as we go through this little study this morning, uh, we, we're all learning together, and uh, I certainly haven't figured everything out. Uh, my wife tells me that regularly, so uh, by all means, uh, please feel free uh, to, to offer your comments. <clears throat> I want you to give a little thought to uh, what Jesus was teaching when... Uh, when he was walking on the earth, if he came to Little Rock and showed up at Fairview Park one Sunday morning and started teaching the things he was teaching when he was on the earth, do you have a pretty good sense of what you think he would be teaching? If he were to stand up in front of me and say, I've got some some good news for you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when somebody says, I've got good news? First thing, I'm going to get something. Anybody else? That's probably what most of us think, okay? Some of that depends on the circumstance you're in. If you're having serious health problems, and the doctor walked in and said, I've got good news, it you, you may, may not have to do necessarily with you're going to get something, but you're, you know, the prognosis has changed. And uh, if you're raising your kids... Which I am. I'm, I'm sending my last one off to school here, to college here in about two weeks. Uh, and if somebody called me from Florida next, uh, next month and said, Hey, I've got, uh, I've got Emily here and I've got some good news for you. You know, I wouldn't think necessarily that she's going to give me a bunch of money. That'd be nice. But, uh, you know, something good has happened. Something, something she has done. We associate good news with those kinds of advantageous things where we profit in some way. But what if I said, my good news, or if Jesus said, my good news for you involves uh, sacrifice, selflessness, humility, self-control, encouragement, devotion, gratitude, submission, suffering. You know, we don't usually associate those things with good news, do we? Th- those are demanding things. They're They're going to require things of us that aren't always pleasant or easy, and we don't associate what's not pleasant and easy with what's good. And yet I want you to notice if you're there in Matthew 6, if you flip one page, probably one, maybe two pages back to the end of chapter 4, uh, when Matthew offers a little summary before he starts telling us about Jesus' teaching, he says in verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Now, if you're wondering what's the connection, the word gospel to us means what? Not definition. What do you think of? When always, says the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do you think of? The, death, burial, the message, the death, burial, and resurrection, the offer of salvation, Right? But when Matthew's using the word gospel, when Jesus went about teaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's using the definition. If I were to say, what's the definition? The definition is good news. We we understand that. In Luke's parallel, in Luke chapter 8, he uses the word good tidings or glad tidings in some of the older versions. And, and, And we think of the gospel... The message, as, the message as the gospel, when in reality the word as it would have been used then, Matthew's saying everywhere he went, he preached, he was giving people good news. Good news about what in this verse? What does he say? The gospel of what? Gospel of the kingdom. Okay? What do you think he was saying? I've got some good news for you about a kingdom. Well, a kingdom is a, a government, right? We, we understand it if you take it out of the biblical context. A, ki- a, a kingdom is like, a, like Great Britain. It's a monarchy. You, you, that's the way the government's set up. You have one person in charge. They have all authority. And everything that the government does, whatever it is, militarily, economically, socially, uh, uh, infrastructure, it's all under the leadership of whoever the king is. And so Matthew says, everywhere Jesus went, notice in verse 23, teaching in their synagogues all over Galilee and preaching, promoting, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom. Uh, What was he saying? Kingdom's here. I mean, we're we're told uh, at the beginning of Luke and at the beginning of Mark that he went about preaching the same thing that, that John the Baptist preached: the kingdom's at hand. God's rule is here. What do you think the Jews thought about that? Well, it it should be fairly obvious what they thought. They're thinking about the Old Testament kingdom, right? The days of David and Solomon, the the prediction of Daniel chapter 2, that uh, in the days of the fourth empire, after the Babylonian empire, God's going to set up His kingdom. And my suspicion is that they're thinking in terms of the milk and honey, uh, the kingdom of David and Solomon where they're controlling everything and, and, and everybody's prospering and God's blessing them and the nation of Israel is ruling the world. And you go back and you read a lot of the Old Testament prophecies and, and I guarantee you, if you didn't have the New Testament, that's the conclusion you would draw. Is He's going to set up a kingdom on the earth, a physical kingdom, a temporal kingdom, a military kingdom... Over and over, God talks about His domination. You read the 110th Psalm where He talks about setting His Son upon His throne, and the end of that Psalm talks about killing all of His enemies. It's bloody and ugly, but it is the theme of victory and domination. And so when Jesus comes along, my suggestion is He'd come to Fairview and say, i got some good news for you. This kingdom's coming, and the first thing that pops in your mind is, okay, the government's about to turn around, things are going to get good, God's going to be in control, he's going to put his king on the throne, and we're going to rule the world in righteousness. And they didn't dismiss the righteousness part of it, but I believe that's what they thought. And I think as you go through the New Testament, that's fairly clear. Uh, the Pharisees are worried about war with the Romans. If you've got the wrong Messiah up there who can't, lead an army and Jesus wasn't what they were looking for. Jesus wasn't what John the Baptist was looking for. The apostles don't understand it. The, the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus turns him away and they're going, well, who can, you know, who can be saved? You can't start a kingdom without some wealth. You can't start a kingdom without some powerful people. You can't start a kingdom without an army. And while Jesus was pretty attractive, put him at the head of the army and he can walk on water. He can feed thousands with a few loaves and fishes. Logistics aren't a problem. Uh, you, you know, Somebody gets their arm cut off, he can heal them. Somebody gets killed in battle, he can raise them from the dead. It had to be confusing for the apostles. Yes, sir? In, John, in Matthew chapter 11, when he sends his disciples to Jesus and asks him, are you the one who is coming or are we supposed to look for another one? The idea of another is the idea of a different kind. And I think even John didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. Okay? Now, I say all of this because I think what Matthew does for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, is to give us a good glimpse of what Jesus would have taught if he had come here. Because if you look at Matthew 4.23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, okay? Keep your finger there and flip over to the end of Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse 35, which says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It is almost verbatim the same statement. You ever notice that? I would propose to you those are intended to be bookends. And what He tells us in both of those verses is, Jesus was going everywhere teaching. And He was preaching the good news about the kingdom, and He was healing. You know what's in between those two verses? Well, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is what Jesus was teaching, guess what's in Matthew chapter 8 and 9? Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and, and I think that's what God intended when He did it that way. And that's my opinion, but I think that's the way the structure is intended And so, if you want to know what Jesus was preaching, look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to the book of Luke, you find different elements of the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of different places. Have you ever noticed that? It's not all in one place. Have you noticed that before? Yes or no? Okay? If you haven't, you'll find different parts kind of scattered in different contexts. Why? Well, because Jesus was teaching this everywhere He went. Okay? And what was He teaching? The kingdom's not what you think it's going to be. Okay? It is not this temporal empire that you're looking for. In fact, as I said, it's going to involve suffering and humility and selflessness, and self-control. I mean, he starts off, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. If you think of those things in terms of a military temporal empire, it doesn't make any sense. Who's going to persecute you if you're running the world? What are you going to be hungry and thirsting for if you're living in a, in a nation that's flowing with milk and honey? it doesn't make sense with regards to the idea of a temporal kingdom. And I believe that's part of the confusion that people had when they listened to Jesus. He did things that said God was with him, but he said things that didn't make sense with regards to their expectations. And it's in the midst of this kind of strange dichotomy that Jesus offers, if you go over to chapter 6, the statement that I I want to really focus on, which is, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. What Jesus demanded of His listeners was, this kingdom that God's about to set up has to be the priority of your life. And, And let's just make that observation at the start. If we're going to follow Jesus, the rule of Jesus has to be the priority of our life. And if you don't get anything else from anything I say today or any time else the rest of the week, this is the thing to get. The reign of Jesus the Christ is the priority of our life. And if it's not your priority, uh, as kindly as I know how to say it, let me suggest to you, you're going to fail as a disciple. If it's not the priority of this group of people, this church will not stand. Now, let's look at that for a few minutes in its context. I want you to notice that if you look at verse 33 in Matthew chapter 6, the I want you to notice the word that is the first word in that verse. What is it? But. Generally when somebody says, but, that, that's, a, that's a bridge between what's being said and what's about to be said. Okay, Something I've been saying is, is being contrasted with something I'm about to say. And, and if that is the case, and we don't often do this in our Bible study, Then it demands, if we really want to understand what Jesus says when he says, Seek first the kingdom, we need to give a little of thought to what he's just said. Because what he's just said is the issue, that's the problem. So if you back up to verse 19, the immediate context of this statement starts with Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore... I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither toy, sow nor reap uh, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them, Are you have not much more value than they. And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. In other words, they don't make their own clothes. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow's stone in the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? After all these things the Gentiles seek, your heavenly Father knows you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. So... Let's make this point because I think this is the first point Jesus makes. If we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and seeking it first and that priority, the first thing we need to understand is temporality is a problem. And that's the warning that Jesus makes. And I guarantee, I guarantee you, if Jesus came and preached here this morning, He would offer this warning to us. And, and let me suggest to you that this is probably the biggest obstacle that we have in this country to real trust in God. It it, it is almost certainly, verse 19, the most violated command that God has offered to mankind. We don't think of it that way, but let me ask you. How many of you laid up any treasures on the earth? Yeah? You know, all of a sudden when we think, uh, do you have a bank account? uh yeah you got a savings account oh uh, yeah you got a 401k been with your, your company for a long time well yeah uh have you put some money in your mutual fund well uh well yeah do you tell your kids look guys you know before you have a family and have a bunch of demands start taking some of your money and putting it away Invest in your future. My, my oldest daughter just graduated. She was here last time I was here. That's been six years ago. It's hard to believe. She just graduated from grad school. She's uh, becoming an op- occupational therapist. Takes her boards here in a few weeks. That's the only reason she didn't come this week. And, uh, you know, I've already told her, I said, baby, you're not married. You don't have any kids. You're going to be making a really good living well, because it's, it's a very much in demand job. If you'll just take a quarter of what you're making and put it away and get in the habit of that. In ten years, you could have X amount of money. And I've offered that advice. And I think it's sound financial advice. But it's laying up treasures on the earth, isn't it? And we don't think of it this way, but what Jesus tells us is, don't do this. The issue, now, now at this point, you're probably thinking the way I think. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> we start trying to rationalize this. Have you started thinking that way yet? Huh? Come on, be honest. We understand that the point is, and, and I think it's a valid point. I, this is not stated in the absence of a context. Verse 21 where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again in verse 24, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and the love of money. Okay, now we recognize that, and what Jesus is after is to have us to examine where our heart really is. But I tell you, in our culture, this is a problem. Because very often we can say our heart is, is given to God first, but the reality is when the, the rubber meets the road, there's a lot of us that what we think about most of the time is our finances, our job, our future the stock market, the economy, where the nation's going, whether or not Trump's tariff plan is going to destroy us all. And and, and that's the kind of thinking that Jesus would have us get out of. And part of that rationalization uh, is what he goes on to talk about at this point. You know, the first challenge is, where's your heart really? Where's your mind? What do you really think about most of the time? Do you think about God more than you think about your financial circumstances? That's it. That is a challenging question. And I look at it and I go, well, uh, yeah, but I've got three daughters. Now, my oldest one just graduated from college. You know, I hear people say, well, they get out of college, they get off the payroll. Well, you know, that'd be nice. But now my youngest one's starting, so i got two in college at the same time. And uh, college is expensive. And all three of my kids are girls. You want to know what's more expensive for three girls than college? Hair products. <laughs> you know, Do you have any clue how much shampoo and conditioner I buy in a year? You know, toilet paper. I don't know what they do with it, you know. Uh, bobby pins. We buy bobby pins all the time. And I look at my life and I think, you know, I've... I've got to get these kids raised. I've got to get them taken care of. I've got a family to support. I, and we'll even, we'll even get biblical. Well, you know, I'm supposed to be a good steward of my money, and I've been trying to help this person over here, and this person's been struggling. Tracy and I tried to give them a little money, or we tried to make sure and go feed this person. And, y- you know, and we think, well, I, I can't just dismiss laying up treasures on the earth. And that's interesting to me because Jesus. Immediately goes from don't lay up treasures on the earth to the yow but section. And that's why he says in verse 24 or 25, therefore, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on. Now I'm going to tell you, that's the real challenge. And I recognize that as you go through there, the point, the prohibition, he says it over and over 25, don't worry. Uh, 27, don't worry. 28, don't worry. Uh, 31, don't worry. It, it, it is undue attention that Jesus is warning us against. But there's a reason He has to warn us against that, because it is the way we think. And it's a, covetousness is a simple thing to fall into. You know, I, I look at it this way. If, if I just had enough money to get my kids through college without taxing our day-to-day living, man, things would be great. You know, if I only had a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And we go from that and say, well, you know what would even be better? If I could have all my bills paid, I'd never have to worry. God doesn't want me to worry. If I, if I had a million dollars, I don't know why a million is what we always choose. You know, If we're going to do that in my circumstance, might as well be a hundred million. But if I only had a million dollars, I'd never have to worry about anything again. And so we get to thinking in terms of if I had enough to cover everything, then I wouldn't have to worry. And the next thing you know, we're in the process of covetousness, of desiring more than we have. And uh, Paul calls that idolatry in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. And we need to be aware of how dangerous that thinking is. And Jesus preached this everywhere He went. And basically what He says is, God will take care of you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God's going to take care of that. And that's almost un-American to us, folks. We have a hard time getting that out of our heads. That kind of balance is tough for Christians because of our culture. And it's not just poor people that that have a problem with that. It may be a greater temptation for those who are wealthy because they're so accustomed to thinking about their wealth and building it. Are you uncomfortable yet? Because we ought to be. And it's scary to me because I'm responsible for managing this for my family. And I know how much it gets in the way. The challenge of Jesus is we need to think spiritually more. It was a challenge he he dealt with with his apostles all the time. Uh, In chapter 16, they're going across the Sea of Galilee and the Pharisees and Jesus uh, have been going at it all day. And as they're going across, Jesus tells the apostles, uh, you, you, need to, you need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. <laughs> and the apostles are going, oh, I knew he was going to figure out we didn't bring anything to eat. And, and, and Jesus, I think Jesus becomes frustrated with them. He said, You know, you guys, why are you thinking about bread? I just fed 5,000 people over here, and I just fed 4,000 over here. Where's your trust? And then they finally figure out he's using leaven figuratively and they have to be careful about the influence, the teaching of the Pharisees. But they didn't think that way immediately. And part of the ministry of Jesus with regards to his apostles is trying to get them to think spiritually. And I'll tell you, that's the challenge for us. uh, Paul in in uh, Romans chapter 8 talks about being carnally minded as opposed to being spiritually minded. And carnally minded people All that's going to bring is death and destruction and spiritual-mindedness is what brings life. And it's because we get out of the things that hinder us from trusting God. And here's the real measure of trust. Do I really believe if I seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things will be added to me? You know, that's a promise God makes. And we put a lot of confidence in some other promises, God. Now, how many of you have been baptized? Raise your hand, okay? Why? Why were you baptized? Do what? Somebody said it. It wasn't you that I heard first, okay? But that's what I heard. We were baptized for the mission of our sins. Do you believe that when you were baptized, God forgave your sins? Why do you believe that? Because God promised that's what He was going to do. Do you believe that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, God will take care of your physical needs? Same God making a promise that actually, in a lot of ways, is a whole lot easier. I mean, He can take five loaves and and, and two fishes and feed thousands of people. I I think He can take care of making sure we got what we need. But, you know, when it comes to those practical things, trust is a lot harder, isn't it? And, And I think it's harder because, personally, I want to know how He's going to do it. I don't believe that if I give myself to the pursuit of God every day, then when I go home at the end of the day, the pantry and the refrigerator are going to be restocked. I don't believe He works that way. And I understand this is a doctrine that has been terribly perverted by most religious bodies in our day and age. Because this appeals to us. If I'll be faithful to God, I'll be healthy. And I'll be wealthy. And there are people who make a lot of money preaching that garbage. That is complete opposite of what Jesus was saying. But what He does say is, I will take care of you. I just don't always know how. Some things are obvious. If I'm serving God, I'm going to work. Because if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And that's part of our responsibility. And if I work, it is reasonable to assume I'm going to receive wages. And I'm a part of a local body of believers if I'm serving God faithfully. And what do we do every first day of the week? We take up a collection. Why do we do that? Well, the primary reason biblically was to take care of saints that were in need. I mean, there's, there's things that are in the system that God has set up for His people that help us to understand that He's going to take care of us. And then there's the issue of providence. You know, David said in the 37th Psalm, I, I have been young and now I am old. And I have never seen God's people deserted or begging for for bread. Now the question is, folks, do we have enough trust in God that even though we don't understand how He's going to do it, that I'm going to put Him first in my life that He's going to take care of me? And that'll challenge your trust in God. Now having said that, look back at verse 33 and understand... What the priority is to be. It is to be seek first what? The kingdom. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what everybody thinks here, and I don't want to cause any problems. So let me tell the elders right offhand. I don't want to cause any problems. But I do. I'm one of these weird people that I don't believe that the kingdom and the church are the same thing. Okay. And if we need to talk about that further, I'll be glad to do so. I don't want... I don't want there to be any divisions, but I do want you to hear me out because I don't think what Jesus is saying is, seek first the church of Christ and all these things will be added to you. Jesus talks about the kingdom all the time. Kingdom of God generally in Luke, kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And what Jesus came to do, and we think of He came to forgive our sins. Yes, He did. But essentially what Jesus came to do was to put God back upon the throne again. And, and, and the word kingdom, basileia, and it's always used this way, describes the dominion of a king. That, that over which a king reigns. It, it may be talking about the, the geography, it may be talking about the citizenship, it may be talking about uh, the influence, but we under if, if we took it out of the biblical context and we said the 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 kingdom of of England, we would understand completely. We wouldn't have any problems with that. The, The word ecclesia in the New Testament is the word church, and it's always, 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 always used to describe people. The people of God. It's a collective noun. It's like herd is all the cows. Church is the Christians. Sometimes the church at Fairview Park, locally. Sometimes the church generally, universally. But but I'm one of these people who don't believe that those two are the same thing. I think there are connections between them. I think the church is vitally important. In Ephesians chapter 3, we are told that when God wants to point out to the spiritual powers in the heavenly places His wisdom, He points to us. It is through the church that the wisdom of God is seen. Taking all these people from all these backgrounds with all these issues and making them one, now that's power, that's wisdom. And God says, it's my people that, that shows my real power. And Jesus did come to secure a people. But, but what we, as God's people, have done is we accepted the rule of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, what did Jesus tell the apostles right before he ascended? All, all authority is what? Given to me where? In heaven on earth. Okay? What that means is he's reigning. And we very quickly, Jesus is our King. Yes, he is. That's what, that's what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. That he ascended to the right hand of God to reign. And it's all over the New Testament. What the apostles consistently get in trouble for? In Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 17, they were, they were brought before the authorities on the charge that they were preaching what? Say it again. Another king. Not Caesar. Jesus. In Revelation, that's the reason people were being uh, persecuted. It, it was religious, but, it, but, but basically it was political because if you didn't accept Lord Caesar, then you were considered treasonous. And we get that. We understand government. We understand the the, the bounds of the United States of America. And I want to propose to you that we start thinking about ourselves as being a part of a government whose king is in heaven, whose king reigns over everything, whether people accept it or not. You know, I'm, I'm not a political guy, but I am going to use this illustration when... When Donald Trump became president, and I don't, I don't really care what you think about him. It doesn't matter. Uh, there were people that were suddenly going, he's not my president. You, know, you remember that, that not my president movement? Yes, he is. <laughs> you can say that all day long, but if you're a citizen of the United States of America, he's your president. You, know, you can wear a t-shirt that says, I don't like my president. Have at it. When Jesus said, all authority is given Me in heaven and on earth, what He's saying is, I'm everybody's king. Now you may not accept it, and there's the difference between the church and the rest of the world. We've been called out. We accept the king. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. It it just hit me about a year ago, believe it or not, what this passage is saying. Ephesians 1 22 and 23, speaking of God and Jesus and His authority. Verse 21: above all principality and power and might and dominion, He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We've read that for years, and maybe you still, and maybe you haven't. Uh, we still read that and think, okay, what that's saying is Jesus is the head of the church, right? Read it carefully. He gave Him to be the head over all things. What's the next phrase? To the church. What that means is, the church are really the only ones who understand who Jesus really is. He is the head over all things. The church recognizes it. You go out here in the world, you go out here in Little Rock, you drop some, drop, drop, be dropped in the middle of a neighborhood and walk around and say, who's the king? Who's in charge of everything? Uh, they probably won't say Jesus Christ. But the reason every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess is because Jesus is in all authority. He's the king. He's over everything. Now, what does this have to do with seeking first the kingdom of God? Well, I tell you, folks, when we start thinking in these terms, suddenly serving God takes on a little different meaning. We're not just promoting a religious movement. We're not just trying to get people to think about morals. We're trying to help people understand the government that's going to, 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 to survive the end of the world and, and be in existence forever. First Corinthians chapter 15. Now the king's going to change. At the end of redemption, Jesus is going to give rule back to the Father. But right now, Jesus rules everything and every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to fast. And my job, and I believe this is what Jesus was telling the apostles, I've gone a long ways to get to this point. I believe what Jesus is telling people when he's preaching is, look, your life's going to have to be about my government. You're going to have to see yourself as a son of the kingdom. And that's not hard when you start thinking in governmental terms. You know, Jacob mentioned something about, And if you don't know the geography of Texas, shame on you, you ought to. Uh, well, I have to say the boy's right, you know? <laughs> I'm not really worried about the United States of America. If it falls, that's fine. If we're going to build a wall, I want to build a wall around the state of Texas, okay? And if you're nice, we'll let you in. Because honestly, I am a born, bred, dyed-in-the-wool wear a flag on every tie I've got, Texan, and that's the way I see myself. And that is the honestly that is the government physically I'm most loyal to, honestly. But what God's saying to us is, this is the government you're supposed to be the most loyal to. Philippians chapter three, my our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior who's going to come back. And suddenly what happens is life becomes an ambassadorship. When I'm teaching, trying to talk to somebody about their soul, I'm not just trying to change their religious beliefs. I'm trying to get them to acknowledge another king, another ruler. And when I talk to people about the gospel, I'm promoting the king. It'd be like... Going to India, we were talking last night, I got to go to India years ago, and I'm telling you, when you're six foot two and bald-headed, you stand out in Hyderabad, India. But people want to know, they'd want to know about America, and they'd want to know about Texas. I was an ambassador. I, I, the, the, you know, to, to anybody that saw me, I, I didn't belong there, that's not where I was from, and they recognized that, and it would naturally lead to questions. Well, that's, that's who we are as Christians. I'm not from here. I don't belong here. I don't care about the U.S. government in the big picture. I'm not, a, I'm not an anarchist. But there's just a bigger picture here, folks. If, if, if America falls, God's throne doesn't fall. We're still Christians. It doesn't change our government. And this is our Constitution. And whether the Constitution of the United States of America stands or falls or gets changed by liberals or gets changed by conservatives, it's not going to change my Constitution. This is what I'm defending. My Lord is the King that I am promoting. I'm trying to tell my children about government. Not Texas government or U.S. government, but God's government. Does that make sense to you? Yes or no? Not asking if you agree. I want to understand do you get the point? Now, if you start thinking that way, and I tell you, it's like pushing over dominoes. You start thinking that way, and suddenly different aspects of serving God take on a new light, a new life. And Jesus says, This is what I want you pursuing. I want you pursuing the government that God has set up, the king that's sitting upon the eternal throne that's reigning over everything. And what he was telling the apostles is, I have all authority. You go tell people. Rome's not going to save them. Judaism's not going to save them. Only thing that's going to save them from death and sin is me. You go tell them. And part of the reason the apostles were successful is they weren't, they, it wasn't a religious movement, folks. It was a government that took over the world, just like God said it would in Daniel chapter 2. It, it's a stone that knocks down all other governments and then it becomes a mountain and fills the whole of the earth. And when we start seeing ourselves as a part of the dominion of the King Jesus Christ, doesn't take anything away from the church. But when we understand that the dominion is bigger than the people, then I think we're starting to appreciate what Jesus was telling people when He was going and preaching everywhere He went. Seek first the kingdom. And then His righteousness part really just kind of falls naturally behind that. Uh, The word righteousness, biblically is not only used to describe the state of a man, his his right standing before God, but it's also used to describe God and God's ways. In the book of Romans, uh, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it's the power of God unto salvation, to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. He's not saying that's where you find out how good God is. What he's saying is this is where you find how God wants to do things. How God has gone about saving us. And the, the rest of the book of Romans is essentially, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow night, I think. You, you're not saved by all the good things you do. You don't earn anything. The way that God's right ways work is He's made provision for forgiveness so you can stand innocent even though you're not you're justified by putting your trust in Him. And that motivates you to serve. That's His right way of standing right. So what Jesus is saying is, look, you're going to have to quit thinking temporally. Quit worrying about your life on the earth. Start giving every day to the promotion of your King and the service of of His kingdom. and, and, And the right way... Of standing right before God, and that should be kind of the practical daily challenge. Today, do I stand right before God according to His ways of measuring righteousness? So I work on my character and try not to yell at people that cut me off in traffic, or, or I try to I try to work on my uh, my self control when it comes to to eating or when it comes to sexual desire, when it comes to whatever we give ourselves to. I work on these things that God has asked me to do as a matter of character because I'm trying to be like my king and I'm trying to stand right before Him in the way that He measures righteousness. And that's why we are good husbands and fathers and mothers and, and, and wives and children and parents. and All these things that God asks us to do are measurements of how our king measures right. And I need to get up every day and go to my work, go to my school, deal with my relationships, and show the world this is my kingdom. This is my king. This is what he considers right. And that's the priority of my life. So, is it? Is that what we're seeking first? i tell you, folks, I wish it was this way, but we can't play church and go to heaven. Jesus, everywhere he went, said hard things. And part of the reason that the, the way is straightened and narrow, and the gate's narrow, and there's not going to be very many, is because it is a challenge to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But God promised, I'll take care of you. You do what I asked you to do. So I hope they'll give you something to think about, or be mad at me about, or not come back about. But it is what it is, and that's what Jesus taught. Thanks for your attention and your participation.